Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by two dialogue partners on our uh, focus on the Russian aggression in Ukraine and the uh, moral responsibility to protect. I'm honored to have Dr. Charles Scriven. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. And I'm also honored to have Dr. Ronald Osborne, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. So both of you have written extensively on the issues of peace and moral responsibility and violence, and we'll be referencing your book, Chuck, The Promise of Peace Today, and also your book, Ron, Anarchy and Apocalypse. But we're focused, as I mentioned, on Ukraine. It's in the news right now as we speak. And I think maybe we'll just start off with a perspective from both of you and the news that you've been consuming. What is on your heart about this issue, Chuck? Well, I think what uh, really bothers me is what appears to be a fact, and namely this, that the world community, or at least the community of democracies, seems at this point to have no way to really hem in someone who, like Putin, is uh, at once a dictator, a sociopath, and a butcher. We don't know what to do. And the reason we don't know what to do is in part that Putin has nuclear weapons. And so it is very difficult to know how to stop him. That really bothers me. Now, I tend to agree that in the long run, Putin may have uh, stepped into quicksand. Uh, it's hard to imagine his getting a long-term win. But between now and whatever develops, actually develops, we're going to see cities destroyed, or at least deeply harmed, and we're going to see deaths, absolutely needless deaths, both of civilians and of soldiers on both sides. I'm really upset. Yes, thank you for sharing that. And Ron? Yeah, I mean, I obviously agree with everything that Chuck just said. And maybe the only positive thing I would say about any of this is the incredible resilience and courage of the Ukrainians uh, is, you know, it's astounding. And I think that it has caused a lot of other people around the world to discover courage themselves that they didn't have or didn't know they had. Yeah, I'm personally um, struck by over and over, I hear Ukrainians from the former um, infrastructure minister I was listening to today on NPR to a couple of 20-year-olds who got married and we've seen on CNN, got guns the next day and are spending their honeymoon bunkered down somewhere in Kiev. They both say, we will win. 
in the end. There's no question. There's an incredible amount of of not just moral um, uh, clarity for them, but also a sort of uh, strategic uh, uh, assurance that eventually, at some point, Ukraine will be free again, and uh, they're just—it's just a matter of time. And their their real call is just for the international community, in some way, to uh, help that happen sooner. So both of you have written on um, violence, and I'm wondering as you're looking at these, you know, at these images, reading the news, how have your views? changed um, over the years or over the last few days as you uh, think about the extensive uh, intellectual work you've put into the kind of Adventist concept of non-combatancy and the question of how should a moral person respond to this? Ron? Yeah, um, where to begin, I guess. Yeah, so, you know, for a long time, I've identified as a pacifist, and I should nuance that. I've always, I think, I think I can say I've always said I'm a practical pacifist, by which I mean, for a long time, I could not imagine or conceive of a scenario in our current world in which Christians might be called to take up arms, because it seemed to me that the demands of just war are so stringent and so hard to meet that I couldn't picture a scenario in which um, a war might be viewed by the Christian as almost unequivocally just. And so the last few days, I think, have, have quite powerfully challenged that assumption of my practical pacifism, um, because it's hard to conceive of a scenario as, uh, as clearly uh, starkly moral in a certain sense. I think the challenge for people who believe in just war theory um, is when we start to move from the realm of do they have a just cause into the realm of action and taking lives and um, the means by which lives are taken and the devastation, the effects on cities that Chuck mentioned, the horrific uh, loss of life of civilians, the atrocities and everything else. Is there a better way? And I think the, the strongest argument for the pacifist position remains the idea that there could be conceivably mass nonviolent forms of resistance. And we saw a story about that actually even today. There was a story I just saw in the headlines about um, Ukrainians turning back Russian forces from a nuclear plant, power plant, um, by simply you know, occupying the streets so to the point where they couldn't advance. So, so I guess one could one could sort of think of possibilities like that. And as a Christian, I would hold out hope that those kinds of actions might increase and continue. But at the moment, um, when I see President Zelensky on television refusing to leave the city and saying we will stay and fight. I, I cannot morally condemn him. And in fact, I feel I must morally praise him. So I suppose that places me a little bit more in the camp of the just war theorists at this point in time, which is not exactly where I anticipated I would be 
at the height of the Iraq war, when a lot of my pacifist views were, were, uh, were forged. And Chuck, are you also um, feeling the just war bells or hearing well, them? I, I wouldn't put it that way quite, but I'm with Ron. I mean, this is such an outrage that it does put a question mark behind any kind of uh, uh, pacifist moral certitude. I will tell you that I've never enjoyed or felt comfortable with the word pacifist because it's so close in its sound to passive. But I am a believer in Christian nonviolence. And if you ask what ought a moral person to do right now, I would revise the question, as I'm sure Ron would, and say, what should a Christian do? Now, let me just say this about my own story. I'll make it very brief. I wrote a book called The Transformation of Culture, which was actually the outgrow an outgrowth or more or less word for word in my dissertation, published by Harold Press, who, of course, would be sympathetic to uh, Christian nonviolence. And um, one interesting response uh, was published in the Conrad Grable Review, which is uh, from Canada and is run by Mennonites. And two people responded to my book. And I want to just uh, say to you uh, a little bit about both responses. I'll make this quick. An author named Hubner declared that I had compromised nonviolence in my eagerness to avoid legalism. Another author, Walsh, declared that I had upheld nonviolence, but fallen into legalism. And uh, I then had to kind of try to respond to that. And uh, I will say very quickly uh, how I respond. I think that as a follower of Jesus or a would-be follower of Jesus and someone who has high regard for the Sermon on the Mount, I embrace as my default position, as I'm guessing Ron does, the notion that we are called as disciples to embrace the peacemaking that was, uh, as it were, um, exemplified by Jesus. That includes love of enemy. It includes prayer for your enemies. It includes uh, an unwillingness to commit injury against your enemies. It, it, it requires resistance. And that's another story, by the way, whatever the Sermon on the Mount means by do not resist, it doesn't mean do not do anything to resist. It doesn't mean that at all. It means uh, protest against, I think, or it comes closer to that. But uh, I think we, we, we have to resist evil. But the vision of Jesus is that you resist it by way of a peacemaking style that takes the outcome you are looking for to be reconciliation and takes the method of getting there to involve forgiveness. I still hold on to that. And for that reason, I think any Christian should be in the business of preparing for nonviolent witness. I don't keep a gun under my pillow. I won't keep a gun on my pillow. I still have grave doubts about encouraging Adventist young people to join the military. There are all kinds of people who are not only willing, but eager to join the military and to bear weapons. We ought to be preparing and urging our children and urging ourselves to prepare for nonviolent peacemaking that includes a strong willingness to forgive, a strong commitment to an ultimate goal of reconciliation. But 
And here I'm veering toward Ron. I think that uh, as I as I thought when my book was written, I think that we should acknowledge that sheer legalism is dehumanizing. Uh, I, I, I imagine the book, the following case, I hope I'm not going on too long, and that is some berserk guy who is camped out in a house across the street from a school playground, and he's just throwing bullets over there and picking off children. Now, I think the likelihood that a uh, someone who was not training to uh, be violent would be in a position to uh, take that guy out may be low. But the point is, we would support, and if we had to, we would certainly want to do whatever we could to take that guy out, not necessarily killing him, but killing or aiming to kill him if necessary. And the reason is that there are circumstances under which Nonviolence as a witness against moral deflation, which is what it's meant to be, has no, would have no semblance of constructive witness at all. Uh, and it's at the point where nonviolence would have no semblance, no suggestion, whatever, of being constructive in the circumstances that we might have to bend. So let us say that I'm an Adventist in Ukraine. I think if I were the sort of Adventist I imagine becoming, that is to say someone who takes the New Testament seriously, I would not have uh, been eager to be a central part of the military. Now, I don't know their rules over there, and it gets very tricky when there's required service in the military. But that would not be my calling. My vocation is peacemaking. Now, in these circumstances where everything seems skewed by the madness and sheer amorality of uh, someone who I think can fairly be regarded as a butcher, and that person has overwhelming force, and the Ukrainian government is taking no steps at all toward any kind of offensive response and is, is telling the world that they have nothing against Russia. They don't intend to do anything to harm Russia. I think in those circumstances, if I were in Ukraine, I would be supporting the effort that Zelensky and his government isn't making. And maybe... I'm not there, but maybe if someone gave me a gun or a Molotov cocktail, I might in these circumstances be pushed into a violent response. But my calling and my moral effort goes into training toward the embodiment of nonviolent peacemaking. That's my go-to position. Okay. Ron, um do you want to respond to that? Yeah, no, I, I agree substantially with with everything that uh, that Chuck just said, um, and I think probably the 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 fear I would have about this as it becomes a protracted conflict, if that's what happens, which it looks like it will, is that it will become harder and harder to sustain over time a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation and love towards one's enemies. There's, I think, an inevitable moral drift in war, and and it usually ends in hatred. Yes. And I think that is that is the the awful truth of the matter. But I think right now it's clear that for 
uh, Ukrainians, they have no argument with these poor 19-year-old conscripts from the Russian army who are being shoved out here into the front lines without even knowing where they're being sent. They have no argument with, with these young men. And they're saying to them, put down your guns, you know, we will give you amnesty. And so, you know, at this stage in the game, I think there is no, I, I don't perceive hatred to be the motivating force. It really appears to me to be just an awful, uh, an awful dictator, a butcher, uh, as you said, Chuck, who is, um, you know, terrorizing an innocent people. And under these circumstances, I can't think of a scenario where just war precepts apply as starkly and clearly as as this one, at, at least in the immediate situation. I mean, there's there's another reality that we have to, of course, be mindful of and keep in mind. And um, there was this great book by this historian, um, actually he's a novelist, but he wrote a history uh, called um, Human Smoke. His name is Nicholas Baker. And in this, this book, he basically tells the story of the lead up to World War II. And, you know, World War II is often held up as this, um, this kind of exemplary case of just cause, right? But what you see in this book, Hum Human Stain, is that throughout the 1930s, there were a lot of pacifists and peace-inclined people who were trying to avert war through all kinds of heroic endeavors to um, get the, the great powers to you know, cease this kind of rush towards, towards conflict. And their voices were sidelined and marginalized. They were ignored. And there was almost the kind of collective madness. And in this particular book, it, that collective madness extends even to the allies themselves. You see Winston Churchill appearing in a less than fully flattering light, a kind of, uh, a kind of precocious imperialist, you know, who <laughs> had, no appreciation for Gandhi or or for others, quite racist in his views in many ways. And, you know, and so, you know, there there comes a point if you if 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 we refuse to attempt peacemaking when peace has a chance, there comes a point where peacemaking and nonviolence is simply no longer possible. So so we could rewind the tape and try to figure out how did we get to this point? Were there opportunities for peacemaking in the past? that might have taken us to a different point than the one we find ourselves in today. But that's also, you know, that kind of, um, that kind of historical memory, I think it's essential, but it's also maybe a kind of decadence when you're in the middle of a conflict. There, maybe there's a time for that kind of introspection and, and looking back on our own sins and faults. But I'm not sure this is the moment to be um, trying to hash out who's to blame. You know, the, at the end of the day, let's put the moral responsibility squarely where it belongs, and that's on Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. This is a war of choice on his part, and whatever historical grievances and and uh, um, bitterness he might feel about the ways he was treated or mistreated, none of it. None of it can possibly remotely in any fathomable sense justify what he has done. And I, I think it's imperative for all people in the West um, 
in Europe and around the world to uh, to not lose sight of that, which I think is also a temptation for many of us to um, put ourselves into a kind of historical analysis mode and begin flagellating ourselves for our sins and shortcomings. Yeah, that's that's all fine and good at a certain point, but there also comes a point where you have to have some moral moral clarity, I feel. And this is one of those moments. Could I just jump in here? I, I agree with uh, Ron altogether, but it's very common to wonder whether a Christian commitment to nonviolent commit, uh, uh, peacemaking makes sense when the vast majority of the West are committed to philosophical utilitarianism which is the idea uh, that one should always do what one imagines to potentially have the most beneficial consequences for the most people. Now, the criticisms of utilitarianism are very to the point. And the best one I ever read was from the, from the atheist uh, uh, philosopher, uh, Bernard Williams, who makes the point as follows. If you are committed as a utilitarian to responding tit for tat to whatever uh, offensive um, action is taken by someone who is getting in your way, that commits you, if necessary, to upping the ante. So if so-and-so is going to slug you and you want you slug him back, but then so-and-so whips out a knife, and then you whip out your knife and then so-and-so whips out the gun and you whip out your gun and then so-and-so whips out some acid and you whip out your acid. It, it gets to be uh, a process that results in what Bernard Williams calls moral deflation. The moral currency is deflated and deflated and deflated. Now we can apply that worry here in, uh, to the conflict that we're now worried about. It's apparent that official Soviet or official Russian policy would permit the use of tactical nuclear weapons if this gets out of hand. Would it be moral for, if, if assuming they had the capacity, and by the way, Ukraine used to have the capacity and they voluntarily gave it up, or at least they had a capacity for strategic nuclear weapons. But would it be moral for a Christian in Ukraine to support the idea that Ukrainians should respond with their own tactical moral, um, nuclear weapons. And my point would be that unless at some point a community exists that says, here we draw the line, here we will refuse to give a kind of thoughtless obeisance to the dic dictates of utilitarianism, unless somebody is ready to do that, the whole world runs the risk of uh, sinking into an ever more despicable lowering of the moral uh, of the moral ethos, and I make that point in order to show that uh, a Christian peacemaking commitment of the kind Ron and I have always stood for is one of the ways in which the society can not only avoid moral deflation but potentially uh, create an environment in which people draw the line at a different place. And one of the things, for example, that we should absolutely be committed to as uh, Christian peacemakers 
is protest against the existence of nuclear weapons. Those weapons are a crime against humanity. Their existence is a crime against humanity. And our circumstances now underscore the point. We don't know how to respond in a measured way to this criminal in the Kremlin. Why don't we know how to respond to him? Because he has nuclear weapons. Let's talk for a second um, about uh, uh, the UN responsibility to protect. It sounds like uh, both of you are getting to this point that, um, you know, any sort of um, action resistance, including violence, is predicated on both the, the sort of, well, to use your term, Chuck, the sort of moral deflation and the, you know, this, you know, by all, um, by all accounts, Putin's, um, you know, sort of butcher uh, and fabricate butcher tendencies and history with Chechnya and his, you know, absolutely fabrications uh, regarding the causes for this invasion. So the UN responsibility to protect is the responsibility to protect embodies a political commitment to end the worst forms of violence and persecution. Uh, I'm cutting out some sort of UN language to get to the next part, which are obligations under international humanitarian and human rights law and the reality faced by populations at risk of genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. And uh, this really comes out of both the conflicts that we saw in Rwanda and Bosnia in the 1990s. And, you know, we've been talking about uh, Christian language, but I'm curious as you're thinking about if there was a sort of, you know, uh, uh, a sort of uh, opportunity for, you know, citizens to vote within their body politic for some sort of uh, military action, would you support it? on the grounds of a responsibility to protect or on any other that you can um, add? I mean, this is where, you know, what Chuck was just raising, the bleak prospect of a kind of escalation of violence in which we end up uh, committing mass atrocities, which by definition a nuclear bomb is. Um, that's horrific. And so if that was the kind of, you know, escalatory action that we were contemplating, I think we're on a, on a very, uh, a very nightmarish path. I would have a hard time supporting that. I think that the, the actions of the EU and the US to arm the Ukrainians, I have a hard time criticizing right now. It's the thing that is keeping them alive, so to speak. Now, I, again, I don't know where that this all leads. This is one of the problems is we, uh, you know, if we're going to take a kind of Reinhold Niebuhr view of things, the irony and the tragedy of history is that um, our plans don't work out as we plan them, you know. So it's very hard to foresee what the, what the future implications or results or outcomes might be of actions, no matter how well intended. But I also think that's true of doing nothing, and it's true of not arming the Ukrainians as well. You know, 
do we want to live in a world where the message to all the despots and butchers the world over is that indeed you can take what you are able to take by force because no one will stand in your way and no one will stop you is that is that a future we want to countenance you know um what would be the implications of that for the smaller countries that also border uh russia you know lithuania estonia or an even bigger country poland you know these countries are scared and the the irony of of putin's actions is that they exactly prove the point of why these countries wanted to be in nato in the first place because they had no no illusions about uh you know his character or the historical character of the soviet union and russia as a kind of uh imperial power that has historically turned its border states into kind of vassals they didn't want that they didn't want that and they have a right not to want that they have a right to desire a different kind of you know future for themselves so i don't know if i've answered your question or not alex but i guess what i'm saying is is at this stage in the game i have a i support the kinds of actions that have been taken by the eu the un and the united states to provide support for the ukrainians including armed support without escalatory tactics that are tit for tat because russia has been engaging in extremely provocative actions yeah um including the uh the brandishing of its nuclear weapons rhetorically including um extremely close flybys of american planes and ships in a way that is uh extremely dangerous and could easily lead to an accident uh you know these these are terrifying moves um including the poisoning you know which is already nuclear war the poisoning using plutonium of people in countries like like england other parts of europe you know um these are these are uh terrifying kinds of steps that the russians have taken which have not been answered in kind yeah there has been i in my view there has been tremendous restraint on the side of the western powers in trying to deal with this uh this kind of behavior and cyber attacks and we could we could go on adding to the list right um so what do you do when you essentially have a uh a, a mafia that that owns nuclear weapons that's basically what we're talking about let me add to that chuck uh and get your thoughts um the ukrainian that i was listening to on the news said you know they have a great sort of dry sense of humor um and he said that what's keeping them going is that uh, he's like he said this is the best opportunity that we have to get rid of russia <laughs> <laughs> and what he really means there is you know they're very aware of the sort of um things that ron just detailed um we haven't even talked about shooting down an entire airline uh innocent people involved there um would you is this an opportunity you know i'm pushing it a little bit outside of uh, the bounds of our discussion here but you, you know is there is, is there could you extend your moral argument stop the moral deflation you know is there uh, a kind of you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer moment where is this an opportunity to finally get rid of um, a, a power in our world that has, for the most part, been 
a plague on um, the West, if not the rest of the world? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but the idea of getting rid of the Russians or getting rid of the Communist Party entails World War III. Well, I mean, Putin, the kind of old... Are you talking about assassinating Putin or, uh, you know, sending... And uh, I I have to... Yeah. My position on that, I think, is that I am hesitant to offer a flat no. Now, the fact is that what Bontoffer did in world during World War II achieved absolutely nothing. It achieved nothing. But I am one who doesn't want to express sheer disdain for what he did. I'm very aware that uh, what he did occurred at a point when his uh, underground seminary in Pomerania had mm-hmm. basically disbanded. He went home to a highly secularized family and circle of friends and uh, somehow got sucked into what turned out to be uh, an effort that did not bear the consequences he hoped for. I understand that. But as I said before, if there comes a point where nonviolence has no chance whatever of constituting a constructive witness, it kind of pushes us to think twice. And I'm willing to think twice. I don't know how we would do this in the case uh, of of Putin, but uh, I think that, I mean, I I realize that from the left or say from Noam Chomsky's point of view, there's all kinds of reasons to be very upset with the U.S. too. Although I don't think even a guy like Chomsky is out there rooting for uh, Putin right now. And I think we have to be respectful of people who in all moral seriousness might argue that the time is here for something which goes against all international norms. And that is some kind of action against the leader of a country. I think I could be respectful of that. I'm not sure it's a good idea yet. And on the whole, I'm still committed to this idea of restraint, as much restraint as we can have in order to protect the world from moral deflation. I wanted to just say one thing since Ron brought up uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, I will bring up his brother and make a point that in one way is unfashionable, I think not really fashionable in progressive Adventism either. And I'll bring up that point by reminding us of something, and that is that during the 1930s, um, we had a situation in which the Chinese and the Japanese were at each other's throats, and there were Christians around who were bothered by the fact that they didn't know what to do. What can we do about this? The Chinese and the Japanese are just fighting, and it's awful. Well, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr wrote an essay in which he argued that radical Christianity, and by the way, the phrase is his, not mine, that radical Christianity does something constructive even when it cannot intervene directly with what is going on. And how does it do that? Here's what H. Richard Niebuhr said. We do it by building, and I'm quoting now, cells of those within each nation who unite in a higher loyalty than loyalty to class or nation. It is in embracing this higher loyalty that they prepare, as he put it, for the future. Now, I don't want to be simple-minded, but one thing this should uh, motivate Christians to think about is this. We've got to establish cells of peacemaking worldwide. 
That means congregations. That means Sabbath school classes. That means groups of, well, actually, we constitute, we constitute right now a church by the definition offered in Matthew 18. Mm -hmm. And there just has to be um, courage and gumption on the Christian side to go around establishing without arrogance congregations, cells of highly motivated moral individuals where we talk over our commitment to peacemaking. We've got to do something to increase the number and effectiveness of none of those committed to nonviolent resistance. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a strategy. I'm not saying at all that that's adequate to the present moment. Ron is exactly right. The present moment is one that puts a question mark smack behind all simple-minded uh, efforts. This, this is a horrible, horrible development, and it's difficult. Well, to wrap up, I think I'll, I'll read a quote from um, both of you. I'll start with you, Ron, from your book, Anarchy and Apocalypse, published in 2010. And in uh, chapter six, the death of the peace church, you're talking, you're sort of giving a, a great history of um, early Adventist opposition to war and imperialism. And you write, uh, starting in the 20th century, uh, right after the Spanish-American War, the Adventist commitment to nonviolence during this period of the church's history was based not primarily upon concern for personal moral purity, but upon a systematic critique of America's revered institutions of power. And then you add, after Ellen White's death in 1915, however, the Anabaptist ethos of the early church rapidly eroded. I want to um, go from there to um, your book, Chuck, The Promise of Peace, um, published let's see here in oh a year before that 2009 um and you're talking about your kind of two-pronged concept of shalom and you write here here is the point once you acknowledge any limits to the evil you would do in order to fend off harm you have to allow that the way of jesus may make sense Moral limits, after all, prevent downward moral spirals in which, to protect themselves, people keep outbidding their enemies in the belligerence of their responses to attacks or potential attacks, and their enemies do the same. Otherwise, violence only grows more and more horrific. And just to conclude here, I'd love for uh, maybe do you agree with each other? Do you agree with yourself? Um, in what way um, have your views uh, remained the same or changed? Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on that. So I'll be frank. I think that at the time that I wrote that essay and some of the other essays, I had much greater hope for the possibility of the church being a radical alternative community that would model this, this kind of peacemaking way. Because I think the way of peace is not an individual thing. I think it has to be embodied in a community. And I have, I have in many ways despaired of the, the capacity of the Christian church 
and maybe my own tradition, particularly the Adventist tradition, to actually be the kind of community that could chart a radically different path. You know, Chuck brought up Bonhoeffer. Um, he wrote this essay that's it's the first piece in his, the, the book that was published, Letters and Papers from Prison. I think the title of it is After 10 Years. And he's talking about how everything has fallen away. All the, none of the foundations hold anymore. None of the certitudes, none of the moral positions. And the church itself, had, you know, in his day had failed. And I think it was that failure of the Christian community to be the, the church, to be the church that led him to his involvement with that officer's plot on Hitler's life. And maybe that's part of the lesson here is when the church fails to be the church, um, you know, other, other kinds of realities take over and that throws the individual Christian into agonizing decisions. Also, can I, if, if I have just, just the time, Alex, do I, can I share something else? Please do. So, you know, in one of my other books, I, I ended the book with this quote from Crime and Punishment from Dostoevsky. And I was contrasting these two visions of the apocalypse at the end. One of them was from Nietzsche and one of them was from Dostoevsky. And at the time that I wrote this, I actually thought that the Dostoevsky vision was the least plausible. But now I think it's the most plausible. And I'll tell you what the vision is. It's Raskolnikov, the murderer in the story, who's on kind of on now on his path to redemption. And he's going into exile or into, into prison in Siberia to pay for his crime. And he has this recurring uh, nightmare. And in his nightmare, people are infected by this virus. Yeah. And this virus that they're infected by causes people to go basically to go mad with hatred for each other. And here's a quote from, from the, um, the book, Crime and Punishment. He says, um, you know, first of all, he says, never had, never had people considered themselves so intelligent and unshakable in the truth as did these infected ones. Never had they thought their judgments, their scientific conclusions, their moral convictions and beliefs more unshakable. And then he says, people killed each other in a sort of meaningless spite. They gathered into whole armies against each other, but already on the march, the armies would suddenly begin destroying themselves. The ranks would break up, the soldiers would fall upon one another, stabbing and cutting, biting and eating one another. In the cities, the bells rang all day long. Everyone was being summoned, but no one knew who was summoning them or why. Only a few people in the whole world could be saved. They were the pure and chosen, destined to begin a new generation of people and a new life to renew and purify the earth. But no one had seen these people anywhere. No one had heard their words or voices. And, you know, the conclusion I think I'm left with is we we need to learn how to love each other that's that's what i think the problem is and i don't think we figured it out in the context of religious community by any stretch mm. like that that description of the people um hating and biting and devouring one another seems to me to be a pretty apt description of the, of the community of believers itself mm. and so i think probably my my appeal would be um you know, before we try to solve the problems of the globe, we should we should spend a little while thinking about how we ourselves within our own human relations and friendships and communities can actually love each other uh, 
and not become, you know, polarized sides in this virus that Dostoevsky is talking about, basically the virus of hatred. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would like to jump in here with a note of hope, but my hope is deeply, deeply chastened. So I'm very familiar with feelings of uh, desperation and despair about the conduct of the church. But you remember that uh, during the conflict in uh, the Baltic, an Adventist with the last name of Sislich was a leader of the of Adra, and he organized a, a kind of a quasi-postal system that uh, greased the skids for people outside of here, uh, Sarajevo, mm -hmm. to send packages in to the city. It was an ecumenical endeavor. And the Washington Post, and this happened sometime in the early 90s, I think, mm -hmm inquired of Sislich as to how he could keep going. And he explained, well, he said, uh, both sides allow our trucks to come through. He said, if either side ever found a weapon on any of the trucks that we have authorized to carry these packages, it would bring an end to our effort. We have tried to make it clear that we belong to the region not to the conflict. Mm -hmm. And then he said, uh, we are nobodies, mm -hmm. meaning with an apostrophe S. We are nobodies and we are everybody. Mm -hmm. Now that's a hopeful moment. I don't see, I, I never heard an Adventist leader pick it up. I picked it up because I was living in DC and reading the Washington Post at the time. And I was amazed later to find that when James McClendon was a substitute pastor, temporary pastor of a Church of the Brethren community in California and preached a series of sermons that were later published by the Pilgrim Press, one of those sermons told that story. Now, I, I was friends with Jim. It's not because I told him that story. He told that story to his church as an example of peacemaking. Now, to me, that offers hope, but I'm with Ron. It is very slight hope. I've never heard the General Conference president tell that story. I've never really heard any other Adventist besides me tell that story, although it did come out, if I don't misremember, in The Promise of Peace. It is there, yeah. There, yeah. We, 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 we need to seize upon uh, these small uh, evidences of. Uh, possibility. But it is increasingly hard when the establishment, I've never heard anyone at the seminary tell this story. I don't know anyone at the seminary right now who is a highly visible and outspoken defender of peacemaking. Now, I hope there's someone like that, but who is really committed to it and standing for it. So it's very easy to fall into despair but it does seem to me that the mark of, uh, and I'm sure Ron would agree with me, the mark of uh, a kind of viable Christian faith is that hope never dies. It's tough to embrace the Christian faith right now. Well, thank you both of you for talking with us today. I really appreciated the 
uh, insights that you brought to um, the news that we are um, agonizing over each day. And uh, I'll say goodbye. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Ron. It's fun to be in a conversation with you. Thank you to both of you. Stay well and peace to you and everyone else listening. Peace. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 